right, so welcome back. Happy National Arts and Education Week. Um, my name is Kwanis Floyd, and I'm the Executive Director of Arts Education in Maryland Schools, and we are hosting a whole bunch of amazingness this week. We are celebrating the week. Um, just to give you some context about uh, National Arts and Education Week, it was passed by Congress in 2010 as a part of House Resolutions 275. Um, and so they designate the week beginning in the second Sunday of September. Every year is National Arts and Education Week. So during this week, the field of arts education joins together in communities across the country to talk about the impact and transformational power of arts and education. So this year, Ames is celebrating our educators. Every year, we're celebrating our educators because they bring the amazingness to our students and our families every single day. Continue to follow along with us this week as we interview arts educators from around to, around the state. So today we have theater educators. Woo! Awesome. So can you, oh, so I forgot my co-host, Miss Alicia Lee. Would you like to introduce yourself first? Woo! Hello everyone. It's me, Alicia <laughs> Lee. <laughs> Excited to be here with you Kwanis and AIM celebrating National Arts and Education Week. And we've got some stellar guests tonight. So let's get cracking. Awesome. All right. So if you all could just introduce yourself um, and speak about the districts that you're in or that you work with, uh, the age range. And if you have a special focus within theater education, let us know that too. So Joanna, do you want to get started? Unmute. Hi, I'm Joanna Chocolate Fellows. I teach theater at Seneca Valley High School in Montgomery County, Maryland. I also, uh, I also teach film and video production. I have theater classes that range from special ed to IB. And so it's really cool to get to work with the whole spectrum of our student population. I also serve uh, with MCPS on their curriculum writing staff. Um, on the extracurriculars team, and uh, basically in any other way I can. And I am the president advisor for Maryland Theater Education Association, having recently lovingly passed the, the steering wheel over to Dr. Lazarus. Awesome. Dr. Lazarus, do you want to share who, a little bit about who? Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Julian Lazarus. I am the drama teacher at Thomas Wooten High School in Montgomery County, Maryland. I also serve as the president for the Maryland Theater Education Association, um, taking the baton from Joanna. Hi, and then, um, and I do a lot of work around the state in arts integration as well. Um, that was the focus of my doctoral studies. Um, so I do that and then, I have been uh, most recently before I was at Wooten, I was actually at the middle school level for a few years, which was a little bit of a change for me because I've been high school for almost my entire career. So that was a, uh, that was a whole new perspective and it was really a lot of fun. Those kids were, were really fantastic. And last but not least, Ron, would you like to share? Yes, good evening, everyone. My name is Ron Kipling Williams. I am the education manager at the Modell Performing Arts Center at the Lyric. We support the voice and agency of young people in the Baltimore region. We focus on the middle grades, five through eight. So we engage in theater workshops. Uh, accordingly, we worked with um, uh, Baltimore City Schools. We've worked 
with community centers. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's been our focus for the last, uh, we're in our third year uh, of our programming. Uh, I am also a uh, professor at the University of Baltimore. I teach ethics uh, and a faculty fellow with the Hofberger Center for Professional Ethics, which is kind of a circuitous route because uh, I have an MFA in creative writing and publishing arts, but that's another story. And I'm also a performing artist focusing on spoken word and theater. Awesome. So um, we are going to ask you what you do, but using only one word. <laughs> describe to you, describe to us what you do. Just choose one word that describes everything you do. So Ron, we'll start with you first since you ended the last round. We're saying us personally. Um, Personally, I would say facilitate. That's my word. Awesome. And Joanna. Open. And Dr. Lazarus. Collaborate. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Wow. Those are powerful words. That's a t-shirt right there. That's a t-shirt. That's fantastic. So we want to hear more. We've been here all week talking to dynamic educators like y'all. Um, it's really nice to have you here, Ron, because, um, you know, the State Department of Ed and Ames, we strongly support community arts education as a critical component of a robust and well-rounded arts education for Maryland students. So it's nice today to have that community partner piece. Um, will you talk to us? Let's just take a step back and reflect a little bit. And we want to hear whoever wants to go first um, can go first, wherever the bubble comes. But we want to hear about your background. How did you get, how did you become an arts educator? What propelled you to become an arts educator? Why are you an arts educator? What was that journey? We want to hear some stories. So it's theater day. I'm sure we'll hear some. Who's, who would like to begin? Who's got a story to tell? Joanna, let's hear from you. I was just watching you the other day. You know where. <laughs> That's it. So um, I went to a Catholic school, uh, elementary through middle school. And so we had mass every other week. We all went to mass on Fridays. And we had a reading in class because they were looking for people to read, you know, at the church service. And they handed me like a Psalm because it was like first grade. And they just wanted a couple of cute kids to line up at the lectern and read a Psalm. And I read the whole dang page and I read it so well that they asked me to read the entire um, nativity story at the Christmas pageant. And they had me do it for like three years in a row. In first grade, you were the I nativity mean, narrator? Mm-hmm, I was I the nativity narrator in first grade and I was bit. <laughs> so I joined a local children's theater program. Um, and eventually I, um, I left that program and joined one that was run by uh, Toby Ornstein of Toby's Dinner Theater. A Maryland um, icon, Toby Ornstein, right? Icon. I, I owe her, I owe her so much. I learned so much under her tutelage. Wow. Um, and I was, so I was playing the White Witch in Narnia, which was super fun. I was like 10. 
Um, and Toby came to see the, no, I was nine because Toby came to see the rehearsal and she pulled my mother aside and she says she needs to audition for Sound of Music. And so that was my first professional show with Sound of Music at Toby's Dinner Theater. I ended up doing like a dozen shows with Toby. Um, from Toby, I made a connection to an acting coach who made a connection to an agent. I booked a television show. So I did a children's TV show in New Jersey called Bloopy's Buddies, which was basically Barney, but Bloopy's like a big green egg. Um, and from there, you know, I just, I started doing theater all over the DMV. I was at Signature Theater. I was at Theater of the First Amendment. Um, and all of this as like a, a preteen and like young teen actor. Um, I landed camp, which is what most- Which I just watched the other day again for the 100th time. It's such Fantastic a film. It's such a fun little flick. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have, you know, been surrounded by those incredibly talented people. We all are still kind of in communication with each other. I've got a couple of my camp friends that are, you know, now Broadway stars um, who are going to come guest speak for my students at my school via Zoom. So it's, it's phenomenal. And I feel so grateful for the impact that camp has had on so many, especially gay kids, especially gay theater kids. Um, kind of sidetrack, sorry. I went to town. I don't know if you remember town. It was this beautiful, wonderful drag bar in DC. It was like the best yeah. place. <laughs> and so I went to a drag show with one of my friends. And after the show, um, Tatiana from RuPaul's Drag Race came up to me and was like, I know you you're the girl from camp. Amazing. That movie saved my life. And then a whole bunch of other Queens came up and it was one of the best nights of my life. Um, that's sorry, incredible. That's you, that movie has saved. It's so important that you say that because the movie is a, is theater, you know, and that movie for especially for kids who didn't have access to community, to a theater community or an artistic community, right. That couldn't find it in their community felt it through camp as a way of saying it'll get better right I'll find those people somewhere it saved lives and your performance in it is also masterful you're really fantastic in it it's a fantastic film I don't know anyone who hasn't seen it but if you haven't what are you doing <laughs> yeah think about your choices and what got you to this point choices there you go but yeah and and when we talk about it you know saving lives theater Theater definitely saved my life. I, you know, had a lot of struggles trying to fit in socially as a teenager, um, in part because I was so active in theater. And so I didn't really have time to like make friends at high school because I was leaving school early to get to, to go to New York, to go on an audition, to take a masterclass. Um, and it was in theater that I found a group of people who loved me so intensely that I had no choice but to learn how to love myself. And it was because of that experience. I mean, I pursued the, I, I stayed with the acting thing. I had an agent up until I was like 21. Um, and then I was doing a community theater production of High School Musical. I was Sharpay, obviously. And there was a girl in the cast who went to Carver Center, which is the high school that Alicia and I went to. And we can't say it's the best high school in the world, but it's, it's I may have just said that. I don't think I would have survived in a traditional high school. It was exactly what I needed. Um, 
And so there was a cast member who went there and she was like, you have a degree in theater, right? Cause I just graduated. And I was like, yeah. And she goes, our freshman acting teacher just quit. I think you should come teach our class. And so I called up the Dean of theater and they brought me in and I was supposed to sub for two weeks. And I ended up staying there for eight months. And I was like, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to give back that community that theater gave to me. And so that's when I uh, went to UMBC, got my master's degree, um, was lucky enough to land the job at Seneca right out of graduate school. And I have been working for 10 years to build that theater community. And now having been able to serve our community further through Maryland Theater Education Association. And now I am an adjunct professor at UMBC where I am teaching new theater teachers how to teach theater and I'm like come on in come to the tribe we got you this is this is such a wonderful family and I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to welcome people into this this field this art this passion yes that literally saves lives absolutely absolutely what a fantastic story Joanna filled with superstars and Maryland monuments and icons and you also as a Maryland icon. So we are so lucky to have you here in Maryland and lucky to have you teaching students and, uh, and teachers, um, setting them ablaze. Ron, let's hear from you. How did you become an arts educator? How did you get into teaching artistry through theater? Well, now that I've, I've heard Joanna speak and it triggered so many things and I'm like, how far back do I want to go? And really to do it right, I need to go all the way back. So I go all the way back. I grew up in DC and it was an intersection of race, class and identity. So I was this black middle-class kid growing up and then I discovered rock and roll. And then I discovered social justice. And it's the whole challenge of, okay, I don't fit into this. I don't fit into that. You know, you're not, you're not black enough, you're not white enough, you're not this, you're a weirdo, you're a freak, you're all kinds of things. At the same time, um, I was getting, you know, because I, I was I was the kid, you know, other kids were into the hip hop scene and everything. I was in the mosh pit. So I was the kid in the all black and the Doc Martens and the whole whole nine yards, the gothic industrial punk scene, the whole, the whole thing. And at the same time, I was also getting involved in politics and social justice. So I ended up, you know, uh, uh, hanging around Howard University's campus, where I see everybody from Mary Baraka, Sonia Sanchez, the last poets, and I'm, you know, Dick Gregory. I mean, powerhouse folks, Cornell West, Steve Coakley. I mean, on and on and on. The list goes on, and um, so just navigating through you know, trying to, to, to understand my identity and then getting involved in things that are bigger than myself. And in the midst of that, I started writing poetry because just all the conflicts that arose and, and just feeling horrible and depressed and trying to, to discover a voice. And so I found it through poetry. And a few years later, after I started writing poetry, um, and this, the, the slam poetry scene was very, very new. And so I was at the 15 minute club in DC and my oldest friend in the world, Colin Flanagan was like, hey, your poetry is good. And for some reason I was like Linus with, 
you know, Linus in his blanket. That's how I was with my book of poetry. I would just carry it around everywhere, you know. But the <laughs> idea of actually reading it in public, you gotta be kidding me. No, that's not what I do. No, you, I'm not gonna share my personal stuff with you. And Colin was very persistent. You know, he was like, no, you, 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 your stuff is really good. You need to get up on stage. And so, he, you know, after, after all that persistence, I got on stage, I read my stuff, people loved it. I'm like, oh, I think I can do this. And so then I started, started um, in the open mic poetry scene. I moved up here to Baltimore, continued in social justice as well. Um, and, you know, did, did, just kept refining my voice through poetry and it became, it became performative. And so I would memorize my stuff and, you know, all the, all the performative uh, mannerisms. And then I got myself into theater. So it was, I got into arena players. Um, I got into actually American theater project in DC, DC coalition against domestic violence, uh, Baltimore playwrights festival. So many of the community theaters I got into um, and which was a wonderful experience. So basically expanding my chops um, and all, all the time, the mixture of, uh, of identity and social justice. So the, the personal and the political together inform my work. And then, um, somewhere in the midst of that, I said, well, let me, let me do a show. And I went for a Maryland State Arts Council grant, won the grant did my show. My first show was called If the World Were Like Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids. And I went up and down the, the East Coast, the Northeast Coast, uh, uh, performing the show. Um, and, and I think, and, and I can share with you real briefly, because everybody's had like the worst show ever. So my worst show was up at Rensselaer Polytech Institute in New York. And what happened, the, the, way, the reason why it was such a bad show was I had an agent who lied and said that I was a comedian because they were looking for a Def Jam comedian. That's not you. That's <laughs> not me. I don't do that. And plus I'm green. This is my first time really going out there as a solo artist. And I didn't have the, the mobility and the, the capacity to, to flip and change and, uh -huh. and, and do different things, right? So here I am stuck. I actually took the eight hour bus ride up to Troy, New York touchdown the uh, black student union representative meets me she's like yeah so you are a comedian i'm like comedian no i'm a spoken word artist you should have seen the look on her face that's the opposite <laughs> yes the actual opposite we're sitting at dinner so you can imagine we go to dinner the whole nine yards she's upset i know going in i'm going to bomb it's not one of those things where you go and do your thing and then you discover that you bomb. I know I'm going to bomb, but I got to do it. Contract was signed. They put me in a cafeteria. And there was a beam and overhead there was a, a clock. I had an hour show. I watched every single minute of that clock as I bombed and bombed and bombed. I mean, my spoken word was decent but they were looking to laugh. Yeah, no. It's, and, it's, and the looks on their face, like how the heck could you do this to others? 
Wow. Wow, Ron. That is so. incredible. <laughs> what a story. And and what's cool to know is because you obviously continued on, right? You never yeah. stopped, right? Right. I mean, you know, I, I had my tail between my legs as I left, but I'm like, well, this is this is what I want to do. And yeah. so I just I just continued on. I did my my second show. My my second show was called Aware and Outrage. It was this highly politically charged stuff, you know. And the weird thing was because we I would do talkbacks after my show, and they asked me, "Well, what was your life like as an artist? How do you stay balanced?" And I'm like, "I want to talk about all this other stuff. No, let's talk about you." And one of the things I learned was what endears you to an audience is that people want to know you. People want to know your story. People want to get close to you. And that and what that does is is that builds that connection. Absolutely. And it makes it more powerful. Absolutely. You and, and the audience. And so, so what, came, what came out of that was my show, Dreadlocks, Rock and Roll and Human Rights. Yes. My autobiography. Yes. And I taught, you know, so I do, I, I, I do six different characters. I do my mother, my father, a b-boy, a frat boy, a drunk dude on the corner. They're all having conversations with me, you know, because my, my mother grew up in Manhattan, but her first job was, a, was with a Jewish family that owned an optical store. So she picked up all their mannerisms and I'm, you know, around the house, she would, she would always say, oh, Ron, you look terrible, oi. I'm like, oi, what is Ron, that? What I'm, I think what I'm hearing <laughs> is, is that you have really, uh, for you, this is about telling stories, right? Yeah. Theater yeah. for you is, a, is an opportunity to connect with other people right. around your stories. I love hearing your story there about your journey. And you also had all those Maryland icons. So we heard Arena Stage. We heard Baltimore Playwrights Festival. Julian, Dr. Lazarus. Doc, I like to give people their doctors when they owe, when they're due them. Dr. Lazarus, will you tell us maybe just like a few minutes about sure. your journey to, and then we'll go back and, and keep hearing more stories from everybody. Well, well, thank you for the doctor part because I definitely worked hard for it. So, <laughs> um, so I was born in Maryland, but I actually grew up in Naples, Florida. Um, and, and, uh, and for those of you who've gone on vacation in Naples, you went to the nice part, not to the part where people actually live, because um, it's a swamp and there wasn't a whole lot of theater going on. But before I, I did, before I, I was there, I was in elementary school and in fifth grade, uh, I was King George in the revolutionary fifth grade play. And I got a song and a dance and that was probably the last time I sang on stage. And um and that that did it for me. And then there was nothing in middle school. Um, and then I got to high school and I absolutely loved my drama teacher. Um, I didn't realize at the time that he was not teaching us anything. Um, you know, he, he, he was he was he was so important to me as as a human being, but it wasn't it, it wasn't um, the technique that he was teaching us. It was it was community and that's what he he taught us and he taught us family and he taught us um you know he taught us uh, a how to be an ensemble and you know life is messy and and, and we don't need all the, the sob stories but it, it was a tough childhood and theater became a place of safety and acceptance and and um and it became family when family wasn't available and so 
throughout high school, you know, I started doing like the modeling thing and the acting thing. And I would drive myself over to South Beach for auditions. I'd be like <laughs> sick that day and like drive across Florida and go to auditions and, you know, landed a couple commercials for like South America. So everything's in Spanish and, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, and then I decided I wasn't going to go to med school for veterinary because I had worked at my uncle's vet clinic for three and a half years and did all the surgeries and did like all the honors biology and everything. But I was like, that's just not the life that I want. I love animals, but that wasn't the life that I wanted. Um, I wanted to be in this thing that created family and community and, and that I loved working in and I loved the intersection of science and art that was capable. And, and so because I didn't know any better and I didn't have anyone to tell me any better, I was like, well, I have to go to New York City. That's the only place you can go. And I actually turned down a scholarship to DePaul because I was like, oh, that's not in New York. So I ended up at Marymount Manhattan um, and I loved it there. Like I ended up having um, a really amazing experience there because I made this decision. It was really just out of the ether that no matter what job I took, it had to have something to do with theater. Like if I wasn't gonna go to med school, I was gonna do this. No being a waiter, like no, you know, like selling shoes, no showing apartments, no, none of that. It had to be in theater. And what happened was I worked a lot harder than my roommates, a lot longer hours, but I truly had some amazing experiences. I was the shop foreman in my, in my college for three and a half years. I worked tech all over New York City, everywhere from the National Black Theater in Harlem, all down through, all down the, the West End, all through Times Square, Hell's Kitchen, Theater Row, all the way down into the village at the public. Um, I got to work the, I got to work at the American Alliance for Theater and Education. Um, uh, that was later. I'm sorry. I, the Society for Stage Direction Choreographers Foundation. That's what I meant to say. And through them, I was backstage of every Broadway show. Um, I got to work on world premieres with Sam Shepard at the public. Like I was, uh, I went to interview for one of my classes. I went to interview the, the original cast of Hedwig and the Angry Inch. It was a gender and performance class. And I used to rollerblade everywhere. It was the nineties and, 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 uh, and <laughs> I got hit by a cab oh, on my know. way through the village and the cab took off. And I mean, I like rolled over the, rolled over the car, I was all beat up. And I get to the Jane Street Theater for the Hedwig and the Angry Inch. And they're like, what happened to you? I was like, I just got hit by a cab. And they were like, come on in, come on in. You're the third one in two weeks. Come on in. <laughs> I was like, what? And so they like took care of me and like they like got me all cleaned up, which just goes into the whole like still family and we take care of each other and we support each other. and they did the interview, like they're getting all the makeup put on and they're doing the, and, and they call, you know, and there's like, and like somebody comes rushing into the room and they're like, you know, so-and-so can't make it. We don't have a spotlight. And I looked at him and I was like, I'll run spotlight for you. Oh and so, goodness. and they were like, you can do that. I'm like, yeah, I'm the shop foreman at my college. And they're like, okay. And so, um, you know, I paid my way through school doing tech and, and I worked on that show for, for a while. They would call me up. I was a sub. 
Um, there's only one Broadway show I ever turned down, and that was the 97 revival of Annie. I just could not do that show. I think I'm, that seems like a good decision. And um, so then, yeah, and then, um, but what really turned me into theater education was working at Tada Children's Theater and working, oh, with yes. working with those kids that did it for me. I was like, there is something very, not only does the family thing important, yeah. but there is something very important about working in quality youth theater. Amazing. You know what's so cool to hear all three of your stories? Um, some people might think it's cool to hear all these names being name drops, and that is cool too. But what's also cool is to hear all three of you represent that high quality arts education that we're all working. Kwanis is working hard, Joanna's working hard, Julian's working hard, Ron's working hard to make sure kids get, right? That there's robust experiences in your community that you can be a part of, and that there's, of course, a robust experience in your school, right? That both of those things create our next generation of arts leaders. So thank you guys for, for sharing all of that. And then you guys then had all of that technique and expertise, passion, fortitude, collaboration, all of those pieces. When you got to your, to your places, when it was time to shine, you were able to shine in some of the biggest and brightest spaces. So that's those really fantastic stories. Quinise, I'm gonna pass it to you. Yeah, and it actually shows your perseverance, right? Like, so um, we all are dealing currently in a, a time where we can't even fathom what's actually happening right now, right, in the world. Um, and so I'm really interested to hear more about um, what it is that you all are currently doing um, during this time, during, you know, we're dealing with um, systemic racism coming to the forefront. We're dealing with COVID and having to, you know, wear masks and make sure that we're staying safe and healthy. So when it comes to your classrooms, now your virtual classrooms, what does that look like? And I'll start with Julian, Dr. Lazarus. Well, this is it. You're here. Welcome, everyone. Hello, beautiful people of the universe. Thank you for coming to my classroom. Um, I do have a green screen that I can drop down behind me if I want to go on a virtual field trip. But uh, a lot of my a, a lot of my um, files are all here because I've actually moved schools over the summer. So I have all of my stuff. I have all my books. I have all my files. Um, and this is it. The the big thing that I did is I have a light right here. So that a little bit of fill light, two screens to allow me to go back and forth. Um, uh, so technology wise, I, I did that. But I think the thing that I did um, uh, over the summer is I did a lot of reading and I did a lot of reading about like inclusive inclusion, inclusion, uh, inclusive classrooms. Um, I know with MTEA, we're we're looking at creating some initiatives to to build that inclusion up even more and create pathways to to bring in lots of different faces and stories and artists and, and that kind of thing. But I also spent some time figuring out how I was going to balance um, my life as a teacher virtually because virtual is no joke. I mean, it takes a lot of work to get to to teach virtually and. My wife is also a teacher, um, but I read, I, I pulled it for, for this conversation. I read this book right here, um, Fewer Things Better by Angela Watson. And um, she really talks about, it, this book talks about, um, you know, finding a balance and knowing what it is you want to, 
how, how much of, of your time are you investing and how much of it are you giving away? And one of the things that kind of, that really resonated with me was the difference between um, work as a hobby and you know, teaching as a hobby and teaching as a job. Um, and as a theater teacher, that line is very thin and often blurred because I want to give all of myself to my kids. I want to go out of my way to give them the most ex incredible experience that I can give them. But I also need to take care of myself because if I'm not healthy and if I'm not well rested, I'm not going to be a good teacher. I'm not going to be a good dad. I'm not going to be a good uh, a good spouse. Um, I'm not even going to be a good dad dog, a dog dad to my puppy, you know? So like, I have to like, you have to take care of yourself. And like Joanna and I were chatting the other day about like the Bitmoji classrooms and I was all into it. Like, I'm like, tick, 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 tick. Oh, I can make this and I can drop this in here. Oh no, how, look how nice. And I'm like, whoa, this has nothing to do with what I need to focus on right now. And so um, I think prioritizing is, is a big deal for, for teachers right now. So those are the things that I'm doing besides learning lots of new technology to be able to quickly do the things that I would be in person be able to do without having to go through different different platforms. So, um, you know, it's it's no joke. It's it's really hard, but I think you have to be organized and take care of yourself, you know, and and in a way that maybe drama teachers aren't used to doing, you know, we're so used to giving and giving, not that other teachers don't, um, but we give it in a way of our time and of our energy that I think we have to be very cognizant of right now and, and be really aware of, of how much we're, we're doing. Thank you. That's awesome. Joanna, I'd love to hear what it, what it looks like to teach theater in a virtual setting. What does that look like? Absolutely. You're on mute again. <laughs> oh, I keep doing that. Because uh, when I'm in class, I never mute myself because I'm always, you know, I'm always part of the, the facilitation of the discussion and like, yeah, yeah, that's a really great point. Or I love the way you phrased that. Um, but to kind of tag on to what Julian said in terms of finding that balance, I really think that there was a minute there where I was like, I don't work from home. I live at work. And I was like, I got to stop that. I don't want to live at work. So I try really hard to avoid screens. When the workday is over, I'm two books deep because no more screen time in the evening. Um, but in terms of the actual teaching, I'm finding that myself as a teacher, I'm so much more organized than I have ever been. Like I always have an idea like, okay, we're going to do this unit and we're going to do this thing first. And then here's a paper that's going to go with it. But because of the structure that we're in, everything has to be so meticulous and I'm keeping much better track and I'm keeping things much more organized. And so I'm excited for when we do go back into the classroom, I'm like, this is going to be so easy to facilitate. I'm not going to have to worry so much about the planning end. Because when you teach eight preps, the planning is so time and energy consuming, it makes it difficult to really do anything well. So I'm excited to take that piece off of my plate in the future. I'm also excited about the possibilities of moving into this virtual realm. Like, like I was saying about getting some of my camp co-stars to come and guest Zoom. 
I've been reaching out to all sorts of artists from all over the country, a lot of Maryland people. We've got Leanne Dempsey uh, coming in next week. I, I started out thinking, okay, if I can get one guest artist a month, that'll be great. I've now filled every other Thursday through January, and now I'm starting to go back and fill in the, the Thursdays in between. We that's may have amazing. a guest speaker every week. Wow, that's amazing. Which, yeah, and that's something that I never would have thought to do if we were in person. Um, my, my technical crew students are psyched about figuring out how to do a Zoom performance. We're doing Almost Maine. I spent an hour last week with my uh, stage manager and two of my you know, up and coming actor leaders figuring out how we were gonna do auditions, troubleshooting that together. Um, it's really kind of fun to be starting from scratch here. In terms of responding to our social climate, I'm embedding opportunities for discussion I'm embedding opportunities for original storytelling, you know, where I might have in the past had theater one explore a fairy tale. Instead, I'm having them explore what does social justice look like? That's what we're going to build this skit off of. What does equity look like? Um, and uh, next week in my IB theater class, we're going to get into what is cultural context. And part of that will be pitching a devised theater piece that is a response to some sort of current social issue. And I think it's really important that we're able to, and of course, you know, we're, we're integrating more um, playwrights of, of different backgrounds into our uh, curriculum. I've got a lot of, I got a lot of um, Anna Devere Smith. I've got some of Mary Baraka up in there, I heard you, I got all excited when you talked about that, Ron. Um, of course, some August Wilson and Lorraine Hansberry and just trying to make sure that, we're, and uh, She Kills Monsters and just trying to make sure that we're representing a variety of stories and, res and respecting that everybody has a story to tell. And then even in my special ed drama class, one of the things we do every week, we have some sort of story. And I found this fantastic, website called Storyline and they have um, all sorts of people reading all sorts of children's books. And so this week we listened to and we discussed a story about a, um, a young African-American girl who became the first like pro female professional baseball player, the first black female professional baseball player. And this coming week, we're gonna look at a story that is also sign language interpreted. Um, so it's like, it, it's so great to have this, this opportunity to discover all of this new content and really work in all of this new media and to sh demonstrate to our students that theater does not just have to be a response. We're not just telling stories of things that happened. We can use it to tell our stories and we can use it to not just cope which is what I think we were doing a lot of in the spring is just coping. But now we can express and we can heal. Wow, yeah, yeah, wow. that's awesome. Now, Ron, from the community arts standpoint, I'm really interested in learning what, what the education and the curriculum looks like from a virtual standpoint from that end. 
first of all, I want to give respect for the the the, uh, the two that already spoke. I mean, there was so much meat in that. You know, it was, it was great, great to hear. And I think we can get so much from it. Um, fun fact, uh, Mary Baraka and I exchanged books back in the early 90s. Yeah, I had a book of poetry. He had a book of poetry. We exchanged books. It was a beautiful experience. But um, so what we did was um, because in um, we were coming to a close with our culminating performances in the spring. And when COVID hit, we had to cancel all of that. Well, actually, the, the schools we were work with uh, canceled all of um, uh, the program. So we had to shut down. And because of the lyric, um, we're in the stage three of COVID-19 preparations. So because we're at 2500 seat theater, we're going to be the last building that's going to be allowed open to the public, uh, which puts us in, in rather challenging position because that means our programs cannot have culminating performances there. Um, we, and we're still waiting word to see when we'll be able to open back up. So yes, we had to switch to uh, virtual platforms and between Zoom and Google Meet, we were working on that. Um, we did manage to um, end with um, a couple of schools, a couple of others didn't allow us to finish at least, you know, just uh, um, not decompressing, but coming to some sort of close virtually. And so as we had to figure out, well, what are we going to do moving forward? Um, we decided to uh, expand not just to schools, but to other institutions. And so through my relationship with Enoch Pratt Library, specifically Tracy Diamond, I said, well, let's, let's try doing programming with them during the summer. This way, we're, we're having continuity and we're able to work through all the kinks of the virtual world. And so we developed two workshops, um, the um, introduction to playwriting and introduction to storytelling. And uh, we, we had great um, partnership with Youth Adult Services Coordinator, Latricia Milton and Children's Services Coordinator, Carly Blackard. Uh, the playwriting was for high school students. It ran for six weeks from July through August. And they learned what makes a play interesting, how to write dialogue, uh, and they ended up writing a 10 minute play um, that they still have to work on. They still have in their possession that they can transform however they wish. And we want a quick shout out to Kelsey Riggs and Sarah Reck, who uh, really helped us out with that workshop. And then we had our storytelling workshop was for the middle grades five through eight. It lasted five weeks from July through um, August. And they learned all the basis of the who, what, where, why, and when, and why of storytelling, the beginning, middle, end, developing characters. And so we broke them into two groups and they did um, learn the, all the elements of storytelling and they did a, as a final project, they all came out with the story. And of course they got their certificates of completion, all that good stuff, but we learned how to get in, have them uh, get into breakout rooms, mm-hmm. you know, bringing them back. Um, learning how to break it into increments because you don't want them to go too long. You don't want them to go too short. You need to break down the lesson so that they, they, they understand step by step because particularly, you know, you know how young people are. I mean, they'll, they'll take a story and they'll just go, you know, and they're like, okay, this is all great. What's the story about? So, <laughs> you know, we just had to, to work them through. And so I think that was a wonderful experience for us 
to, you know, working logistically on the platform itself mm -hmm. and how we tr uh, transfer to the virtual world. And so now moving forward in our fall classes, we're going to have all about improv, which will be taught by, led by Ebony Evans, which is a one, he, she's a wonderful uh, performing artist, musician. And so she's going to be teaching improv. Uh, Denise Kant, our director of education, who's also a playwright in her own right. She's teaching introduction to playwright. She did the same in the summer. And I'll be teaching, uh, telling our story, talking about stories a little. Oh my God. So uh, yeah, we're going to be doing that. And we also want to continue our partnership with Enoch Pratt and we're in conversation with that. But, uh, that's fantastic. So that's, yeah, so just through practice. And one last quick thing, mm -hmm. uh, piggybacking off of what everyone is saying, self-care. You learn as, a, as an artist, you know, the self-care self preparation before you do a role and the self-care decompress after you do your role. So it's mm -hmm. kind of that thing, you know, going on walks, making sure you're drinking plenty of water, getting plenty of rest. Mm -hmm. Wordscape is what I do, but um, you know, oh, on, you on your phone. You what did you say you do, words what? Wordscape, you know, that, that? that, that app on the phone. So oh. Wordscape is, is like- It's a game? Yeah, it's a game. It's like one of those games that you play. Matter of okay, fact, I'll show it to you right, right now, you know. Um, now you're not the developer of Wordscape, are you? No, I'm not. Okay, all right. Play right. Wordscape games, Sudoku, okay. stuff like that. Just, just, okay. just, you know, just stuff to play with. So yeah, that awesome. that's basically it. Thank you. That's awesome. You know, uh, it's so interesting because we, right when the pandemic hit, we were getting lots of requests from teaching artists about what do I do, especially when schools were reeling from the closure on their own. Everybody was reeling and still is. But um, we were recommending, you know, reach out to some other organizations outside of schools. Some, that sounds like exactly what you did. You know, reach out to Shepherd Pratt, Enoch Pratt, um, Community Center, Library, um, Social Services. You know, there's lots of places, public housing complexes, we're looking for programmings and matching with teaching artists. So that kind of creativity, um, I think goes a long way. And hopefully some of those places can become new teaching artist partners, you know, going forward, right? Places that were really looking for that programming, probably always needed it. And we just didn't know there, the need was there. Courtney's, we it looks like we have time for probably one more question. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just piggybacking off of what you said about reaching out, right? Like, so, you know, educators always have, you know, opportunities to, is when we're in school, to talk to parents, to talk to admin, you know, talk to um, community members. And so now during this time, I'm really wondering what are some things you all currently need support with? How can, if somebody who is a parent or uh, an admin or someone who might be even a, a lawmaker watching this right now, what is something that you would ask um, for support in? I'll start with Joanna. I keep doing that. I keep starting to talk and my microphone's off. And it's bad habits, it's bad habits. Um, something that we've been advocating for in Montgomery County Public Schools is the need for a su supervisor of theater um, in our central office. Right now, theater keeps getting kind of pushed under umbrellas that don't quite fit it. Um, the, they recently reallocated us so that we're under the director of instrumental music. And while he's a fabulous guy and he's doing a great job, he's not a theater guy and he doesn't know our content. Um, and frankly, instrumental music has a lot of things that he needs to do and he needs to work on 
theater has a lot of things that need to be done and need to be worked on. And so I think it's really essential that we keep advocating and that we find a way for theater to become its own position. And I could also see like a, a, a merging of theater and dance. Right now dance is under the same uh, specialist who also manages media arts and visual arts. When you look at there's over 200 schools in Montgomery County, all of them is visual arts. She should really be able to just focus on visual arts to serve that community well. Then we have another person who's doing choral music. That makes sense to have that content by itself. Let uh, our instrumental music guy focus and let theater and dance be their own person so that we can really support those unique performing arts needs, not only in the classroom, but also in those very demanding extracurricular programs for which we have uh, very little in the way of policy or guidance or support because it just hasn't been, there hasn't been somebody designated to do it. So that's something that I'm really rallying for in our county is that we need that representation in our leadership, not only to support our teachers, but also to kind of um, elevate the view of us within the county and with our parents and with our constituents, because we don't have any representation in the county mm. at the county level which I think speaks volumes. What you do and what you don't do are both very important. So by continuing to neglect that leadership position, I think they're doing a major disservice to their teachers, which is then doing a major disservice to our children. And Joanna, you've been uh, advocating for that for quite some time. As we all know, Joanna got national attention for her impassioned speech um, to make sure that a um, leadership position was not cut um, and reduced in her county. And she was able to be successful there and, of course, got that national attention for her incredible performance. All right. At the um, at the um, board meet at the school board meeting. So you're a longtime advocate. And I think what's so cool about that is a lot of times as educators, we think we're not allowed to advocate, but that's not true. Advocacy looks may look different for us. Right. But we absolutely can stand in proxy and um, and call out for support for our programs. Wonderful. What about you, Dr. Lazarus? So, um, so my background, uh, my master's was educational theater at NYU. And in, in that program, we spent a lot of time talking about like applied theater and using the arts to help society and fix things and, 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 and deal with societal issues. So if I were going to, Kwanisa's uh, uh, question, if, if I were going to talk to the powers that be and say, well, what do we need? Um, I would, and wish list out there, I would say the P, you know, the P through eight specifically, and then even into nine through 12, now is a great time to really start initiating those, those theater programs with the idea that this is a safe place to work through issues. There's a lot of kids and adults who are struggling right now. And this is a really wonderful way to bring in some sort of even... We, won't, we don't have to call it drama therapy, but we can say, this is a place to share. It's a safe place. This is a place to deal, work through issues. This is a place to write stories that, re that reflect what's going on. And we already have the law in place in, Mar in Maryland through our Comar law of where through the, the arts task force that you know there is supposed to be a drama requirement, P through 21. Now's a really great time to say, 
this is a very easy way to do that. And if and I made a little cheat sheet here to to as as I was listening to Joanna talk. Um, I also think now's a great time for counties to get crews in there to renovate some of the theater spaces and bring things up to code. Um, so when we do go back, we have wonderful working spaces that that we can use. I think now's the time to get some drama teachers, some really fantastic virtual tools um, to teach tech theater and um, help organize themselves. And then to Ron's point um, now, and Joanna was talking about it too, why not bring in virtual uh, guest guest artists? You know, now is, a, is give give us some money or hire some guest artists that can pop into seven or nine or 20 virtual classrooms. And then you were supporting our, our ecology, our ecosystem of artists, as well as creating variety and bringing in new voices and faces and, and telling new stories. I think that that would be um, wonderful. Like if I had somebody come to me and say, hey, pick 12 artists over the next year, I would have that list to them within five minutes. So, you know, um, especially if they're going to pay for it. So that that's, that's what I would want of those couple of things. Um, beautiful, beautifully said, Dr. Lazarus and, and Joanna, thank you so much. Um, art is a glue that holds the world together. Um, that was none more apparent than when COVID hit and people were doing all kinds of things artistically through dance, visual arts, and so on. You know, take making theater, theatrical pieces and putting it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. You know, so that that that's always. I mean, it's 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 what makes us human, and what makes us beautifully human. Um, and and to specify how arts impacts. Um, at Henderson Hopkins, where we do our theater program, there was a 70% drop in behavior referrals as a result of the workshops we were doing with our students. So art makes an impact um, so rigorously in schools that it should be fully integrated. And I'm on the steering committee of the Baltimore Arts Education Initiative. So going to what, you know, the work that Joanne has been doing uh, for advocacy and, um, you know, many of us are, are, are on that mantle because we understand what it does for a child to make them well-rounded and to help with whatever motor skills, comprehension skills that they need to navigate through the educational system. And let's not forget that art is also an anti-violence program. When a child is able to express themselves, it reduces their propensity for violence. Mm. So one, yes, full arts integration into the school system, treated as such. Two, digital equity to the point to where each child has fundamental access to digital platforms. So they're able to do not just a curriculum, but they're able to do art. And I think by doing those two things and supporting the organizations who are leading the way, uh, whether it's Baltimore Digital Equity Foundation, uh, digital systems and others, we can make that happen and put pressure on Comcast as well. You know, to real to because we need we we need to the what do they call them the the not the decibels but you know the the broadband that they need in order to 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 because you have two or three children in each household. So how how are they going to learn if the if the system keeps crashing? 
you know, and make sure the parents are involved and parents want to be involved. You know, so, I mean, the whole community, you know, there's the old African proverb of I am we, you know, so we, we, we need to, we need yeah. to bring it back to that collective community. That's right. That's right. That's amazing. No, nothing says collectivism like arts, the arts, right? I mean, that really um, is usually a very short sell to try to sell artists on the idea of collaboration, working together, putting ourselves together, Ubuntu, I am we, where it's a village. So, you know, I think it's wonderful when artists lead the way because we already have this beautiful um, global vision of collect of um, collaboration modeled so beautifully in our classrooms and spaces, art spaces on a daily basis. So when you want harmony, bring in the artists. I can't believe how the time has flown. Yeah. We've learned so much. That's awesome. So just on our final question, um, and this is a, a shorter question. If there was a um, undergraduate right now in a theater education program, getting ready to go into the public schools, graduating in two or three years, or maybe even next year, um, what is that one thing you wanna give them as a piece of wisdom, words of advice? Just one thing. Yep, you can go. Uh Find a mentor immediately. Find find your your people who have done this before, because there are so many just pitfalls as a new theater teacher out there. And you you want to go in and you want to go in hot and teach all these wonderful things, do all these amazing things. Find a mentor. Call me. I'll help you. Right. Uh, you know, find people around you that that have done it a couple times and and know where where to step and where not to step and and then that that will definitely help a lot. And then join a professional affiliation, Maryland Theater Education Association, American Alliance for Theater and Education. Find somebody. Go and do that. That was one and a half points. I'll give you that. <laughs> uh, Joanna. So the snarky part of me wants to quote Adventure Time and yeah. say, sucking at something is the first step towards being really great at something. Because yeah. I feel like a lot of a lot of people get in there and fail uh, or, or, you know, not fail, but they fall down and they feel like they failed and it's hard to get back up. But this is such a learning curve. I mean, being a, a first year teacher in and of itself doesn't matter how great you did in your teacher preparation programs. There is no real preparation for stepping into your classroom on the first day and meeting your kids. Mm. So to put it in a nicer way, rather than sucking at something is the first step of being really good at it. Give yourself the same amount of patience, persistence, and passion that you're going to give your kids. Uh, don't take anything personally. That's, that's, boy, if, 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 if anything can help save you from years of scar tissue, uh, don't take anything personally. Even people are screaming at you. It's don't take it personally. Um, it, it, it will, it will go a long way because it's, it's, it's a long battle. It's a marathon, not a sprint. 
you know, we're in we're 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 in it for the love and as Joanna say, the passion, you know, uh, yeah, don't take anything personally because people will say and do anything. Um, and 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 even even when the kids are you know yelling at you and not doing this and not doing that, it's not personal. They're going through whatever they're going through, and so just love them through it, you know. Yeah, yes. I love that. I love it too. We don't let the kids yell at us, but yes, same. <laughs> I was saying that figuratively. Right, I know you were. I know you were. I'm like, I don't think you never had a kid yell at you. Lucky. Oh. Not I, no, 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 but but other people have, and it's important that we support those folks as well. Kwanis, this is amazing. Thank you so much to Ames. Claps to Ames for just putting this all together, bringing us all together. Thank you so much. Awesome, thank you for participating in today's panel. Let's so give it up for the theater teachers. Awesome. So this is day four. We have one more day of National Arts and Education Week. Celebrate your teachers in Maryland. Tomorrow we have visual arts. So meet us back here tomorrow, same time, same place, 5.30 Facebook Live. Woo! Have a great evening. Thank you all. That was great, y'all. That was